Take your Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to read about a, a dream, a, an incredible dream, sort of a, a weird dream. And dreams are always funny. I don't, I don't know if you dream much. Uh, there's some of us, a few of us, that dream in color. Um, most of us, I guess, they say dream in black and white. Uh, have, you, have you ever had one of those dreams that you have it more than one time? It sort of recurs. It comes back all the time. And uh, we're going to meet someone like that. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. We met him last week. He's the king of Babylon. And uh, he had an, the most incredible dream, but he couldn't figure out exactly what it meant. And so in Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, here's what we read. And this is a long chapter, but we're going to march our way all the way through it. And I'll make a few comments here and there. Uh, but you allow God's word to speak to your heart. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 1, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Here's Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the mightiest nation on earth, and he keeps having the same dream. He, and it really troubles him, but bothers him. He can't get a good night's sleep. And just to give you a sneak peek, we're going to figure out of what this dream means in just a minute, but I'll go ahead and tell you what the dream was in its essence. In this dream, he saw a huge statue of a man. It had a head of gold. It had a, a chest and arms of silver. It had a torso and thighs of bronze. It had legs of iron, and then its, its feet were made partly of iron and partly of clay. Well, in this dream... A huge stone rolls down a mountain and destroys the statue, crushes it in smithereens. And then the wind comes along and carries it away, and all that remains is the stone. And he keeps having this dream over and over. Well, and he doesn't know what it means. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar believed that the Babylonian gods spoke through dreams. And so this was his core belief, and he's wondering, what are the gods trying to tell me? This must be important if I keep having this dream. Is, the, is he in danger? Is there an assassin coming after him? Is he the statue? Is there another nation that's going to come after him and, and destroy Babylon and take its place? He really doesn't know what this might mean. And so we read in verses 2 through 4, Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. And so they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. And so all the king's wise men gathered with the king in the throne room of the king. And, by the way, Daniel and his friends were not invited. Now, if you recall, Daniel and his friends were Jewish. They'd been taken from Judea, and they were, they were captured. They were given new names, of Babylonian names that made reference to Babylonian gods. They were... Uh, put in this three-year re-education camp, 
and they were taught the um, uh, Babylonian language, they were taught Babylonian culture, and so these guys were the, they were already the best of the best when they were captured, but now they were going to be Nebuchadnezzar's servants. They're going to be part of the wise men, but they weren't invited yet to enter into the king's presence. Maybe it's because they're rookies. You know, they really didn't have much under their feet, and uh, so they didn't have a lot of experience. Or maybe it's because they were Jewish. They just really weren't trusted yet by the other wise men. And so Daniel and his friends weren't present when the others came into the presence of the king. And uh, these experts included astrologers and magicians and sorcerers and all kinds of scientists. We would say the best people in every field would come and attack this problem. It'd be like our president if there was a serious problem and he's bringing people from every different kind of field to attack the problem. Whatever the nation faced or whatever the president himself faced, he wanted this problem solved. And so that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. He brought in everyone who could bring their expertise to help the king. By the way, archaeologists in modern-day Iraq, which is where Babylon uh, was, have found numerous dream manuals from ancient Babylon. And these, there were, in these manuals were different scenarios, different kinds of dreams, and the manuals tell what each dream means. In, in other words, when someone would have a dream, they would keep a record of it, sort of like an encyclopedia, a reference book, and they would refer to, well, if you have a dream about this, it means this. If you have a dream about stars, it means something else. And so they had the archaeologists have found these manuals, these dream manuals. Well, so what did the Chaldeans, what did the wise men want to do? The wise men wanted Nebuchadnezzar to tell us the dream. Then we will go to our reference books, we will go into committee, and we will figure out exactly what the king's dream meant. And so if the manuals didn't say exactly what it meant, well, then they'd make up something. And that should satisfy the king. But Nebuchadnezzar wasn't going to have it. We read in verse 5 and 6. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Three times in these two verses, the king says the phrase, the dream and its interpretation. I'm not letting you guys off the hook. I'm not just going to tell you my dream and you give me some false interpretation. You have to tell me what I dreamt too. I want the dream and I want the interpretation. He says it three different times. He believes that he has been given an important message from the Babylonian gods. And so the king doesn't want just any interpretation. He wants the right one. His kingdom is at stake. Maybe his life is at stake. He's not playing around with this one. He's not going to let them pull the wool over his eyes. He's not going to be conned by con men. He wants them to tell him the dream and the interpretation. And the only way to know the interpretation is right is for them to tell him the content of what he dreamt, which no one but he knows. And so according to Nebuchadnezzar, think about it from Nebuchadnezzar's way of thinking. According to him, the gods gave me this dream. 
Well, if the gods are able to talk to my wise men, then the gods who gave me the dream can also tell them the content of the dream. So it makes, to me, logical sense what he's asking them to do. Now, he says, if they fail, he'll know they're frauds. And he will have them drawn and quartered. I don't know if you know what that means, but he will have them torn limb from limb. But if they succeed, they'll receive great rewards. Well, so the king said, well, they answered the king in verses 7 through 9. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. This time, when the king responds the second time, notice he left something out. He didn't say anything about the rewards. He said, there's only one thing left for you guys, because I get the sense that you're lying to me. All he talks about is the punishment that they'll receive if they fail. In other words, the king's getting mad. He's not happy. The wise men then speak to the king a third time. I don't know if you were one of the wise men, what you would do. But I think after that second scolding from the king, I'd probably tuck my tail between my legs and run out the door. Might even try to run out of town. But that's not what these guys did. They were bold enough to go a third time. And talk to the king. And this is an incredibly bold and I would say foolish choice that they made. Verse 10 and 11. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who declare it to the king except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. What are these guys doing? They actually start to blame the king. You're unreasonable. You're asking the impossible. You're asking us to hear from the gods, which, by the way, is what they claimed they could do. These guys know they're frauds. But again, I think the king is being very reasonable. If you guys can hear from the same gods that gave me the dream in the first place, then those gods can speak to you. Tell me what my dream is. Well, verses 12 and 13, you have a very, I think, uh, logical response from the king. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious. And we know that King Nebuchadnezzar is a man who he can fly off, at, he can fly off the handle. He can get mad. In chapter 3, we're going to find out that he wants a couple of guys thrown in the lion's den. He can, he can get pretty upset. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. 
So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Daniel and his friends were now part of the class of the wise men. They were about to be killed, even though they weren't there in the throne room at the time. They didn't have a chance to respond to the king at all. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, if you were here last week, or if you know anything about Daniel chapter 1, but when Daniel gets in trouble, he does some unusual things. He makes some unusual choices. In Daniel chapter 1, when, uh, when he didn't want to eat the food of the king that came from the royal court that had probably been offered to the Babylonian gods, um, he asked the, the king's servant for permission not to partake of that food. Daniel was denied permission. So what does Daniel do? He goes to the king's servant's subordinate and asks his permission. Most of us would take it up the ladder. Daniel took it down the ladder. Of course, there was only one place to go up the ladder from the king's servant. That would be the king, and Daniel didn't have an audience with the king. So Daniel took it down the ladder, and he got permission, and we know how the story ended. It ended well for Daniel, and he and his friends were able to honor God with their choices. Well, here in chapter 2, Daniel comes up with a plan, how not to be executed. Now, what might your plan be? My plan, if I was Daniel, would be to outrun everybody, steal a horse and run, go. Let's get out of town. I'll be on my own. I'll do the Moses plan. That's my plan. Uh, Leave for 40 years. It wasn't Daniel's plan. Here was Daniel's plan. I'm going to seek out the executioner. Now, that would probably be the last person that I would go to for assistance, but that's exactly who Daniel went to for assistance. He sought out the executioner. And so Daniel and his friends are under orders to be killed, verse 14 through 16. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. And we read in verses 17 and 18, Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Can you imagine how you might have felt if you were Daniel? If there was going to be a solution in this horrible predicament, it had to come from God. There wasn't a way for Daniel to outsmart anybody. There wasn't a way for Daniel to outrun anybody. He only had one place to turn, and it was God. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Not exactly asking if you've ever been held captive in Babylon, but have you ever been in a situation where there is no solution? I mean, things are bad. Things are tough. And if I'm going to get out of this, it's going to have to be God. God's going to have to work. That's what Daniel, that's where Daniel found himself. And so Daniel and his friends, they turned to the one who could help. 
And they prayed to God. In verse 19, we read, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And that's all we know at this point. Little short sentence. It was done. They prayed, and God revealed the mystery. We don't even know what the mystery is. If I didn't tell you before, you wouldn't even know what the dream was if you'd never read this before. But the mystery was revealed. And it, to me, it's so significant that the mystery is revealed. is basically a sentence this long. But the most important thing is Daniel's response, which is four verses long. Daniel responds to God in the only way that we should respond to God when God gets us out of a jam with extended praise. And Daniel says, we read that Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said in verse 20, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. Not to the Babylonians. Not to the wise men. It belongs to God. Power belongs to God. Not to the king, the most powerful man on the earth, but only to God. It is he who changes times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is God who's in control, Daniel says. Verse 22, it is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Verse 23, to you, O God, my fathers, I give thanks and praise. You have given me wisdom and power, even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel is blown away by the power of God. You know, it talks about God knowing what happens in the darkest of places. He knows what's going on in the darkest parts of your life at any point in time. When nothing else is going right, maybe no one even knows. God knows. God cares. He has the power to help us. For every single one of us, calamities strike from time to time. Sometimes they're big and terrible, and sometimes they're not so big, and they're just a little bit stressful. God knows what's going on. God is not oblivious to our sufferings and our hurts. He allows us, He allows us to encounter difficulties. And if we turn to him, we'll find victory. And so Daniel, with this knowledge in his heart and in his mind, he makes a request to go see the king. Verses 24 and 25, we read, Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, that's the executioner, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence. 
And Arioch spoke to the king as follows. I love what Arioch says here. And I'm going to say it the way I think he said it. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. Arioch wants credit for this. Arioch didn't do a thing. But Arioch knows how to get in on the good favor of the king. And so he wants credit here. And the interesting thing about that is it pales in comparison to the attitude of Daniel, who actually, if anyone on earth should receive credit, it would be him. We read in verse 26, The king said to Daniel, whose name was, he was renamed Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel does not say what we expect him to say. The king asked a very direct question. Yes or no, can you do this? Daniel does not say yes. Why not? Because Daniel does not want the credit. It is not about Daniel. He wants to give all glory to God. So what does it mean when we talk about glorifying God? We talk about that a lot in church and Christian circles, praising God. What does that mean? Well, in the simplest of terms, it means simply to point people to God. It means to speak about God. You know, we, we talk about the things that interest us, that excite us. You know, it's football season. We talk about football. Talk about Texas Tech beating Arkansas. Way to go. We talk about things that are good and exciting and, and things that uh, we're, we, we are really, uh, that are enjoyable to us. And so we, we praise a football team. We glorify a football team. Daniel here wants to glorify God. He does it by talking about God, by pointing Nebuchadnezzar to the true God. Let me challenge you this week. If someone compliments you this week, deflect that to God. Deflect that compliment to God. Help them to see that it's not just you, but, but it's God working in you. You know, you do good in school, guys, gals. That's good. Guess who gave you your brain? It's God. You do good at work. Something goes right. Something goes well. You make that sale. You are able to accomplish your goal. That's good. God gave you that discipline. God granted you that success. Because if you think about it, whether you're talking about homework, real work, you're talking about things at your home life, wherever it is, you know that everything could have gone sideways. But God granted his favor to you. So give glory to God this week. It's God working through you. So that's what Daniel begins to do in verse 27 through 30. We read, Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream, 
and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, the mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Daniel still hasn't told him what's in the dream yet. But the true God of heaven is contrasted in verse 28 with the gods of the wise men. You remember what the wise men said to the king in verses 10 and 11? You're asking the impossible. The gods don't dwell with men. They don't reveal these things to men. Those wise men made their theology very clear that their gods are incompetent. Their gods are unable. Daniel says, my God is able. My God will tell you what the dream was. Verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. <coughs> and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That was the dream couple of things to note. Statues are made by man. But the rock was never touched by human hands. The rock was not of purified gold. It was not of silver. But it was the way God intended it to be. It was of ordinary material. It existed, the rock existed because God willed it to exist. Its power to destroy that statue was from God. Man didn't make it, and it acted without the effort of man. And then the wind, something else man does not control, comes in and sweeps the destroyed statue, all of its dust away. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 41. Verses 15 and 16, the Lord says to Israel, Behold, I have made you a new sharp threshing sledge with double edges. You will thresh the mountains and pulverize them and will make the hills like chaff. You will winnow them and the wind will carry them away and the storm will scatter them. But you will rejoice in the Lord and you will glory 
and the Holy One of Israel. And so we read in verses 36 through 38, Daniel says, This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And forever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Daniel makes it very clear to King Nebuchadnezzar. It is God, the God of heaven, the God of Israel, who has made you the strongest man on the face of the earth. It is God who has given you this kingdom. God has given you this power, this authority. It is from God. And the same God who did all of this revealed this dream to me, Daniel is saying. By the way, Daniel talks about how the king is given... uh, uh, he's called, Daniel calls Nebuchadnezzar the king of kings. That's a title that we, re, we use to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the true king of kings. But at the time, here's Nebuchadnezzar, he's the greatest king on earth. He rules over all the other kingdoms of that known world at that time. And Daniel says, all of the animals are subject to you. We know that, that uh, in that day, the Babylonian kings would typically keep captured animals, wild animals, in pits, or they would keep them in caves. To them, it was a sign of their dominion over the animal world. And we, of course, know that Nebuchadnezzar's own lions come into play very soon in the book of Daniel. And so in verses 39, by the way, Daniel says to him, you are the head of gold. Verse 39, after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you. Then another kingdom, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in little pieces. I want to show you an image of uh, what it was, similar, something similar to what Daniel had interpreted to Nebuchadnezzar. The gold is the Babylonian Empire. And then years later, when Daniel was still alive as an old man, Cyrus, the king of Persia, came and destroyed the Babylonians. And you had the Medo-Persian Empire. We'd say in modern day, Iran conquered Iraq. That's where the Medo-Persians were from, Iran. Then Alexander the Great came along. He conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. And he was Greek. And in fact, it's been said that Alexander the Great, in his 20s, he wept because there was no more land to conquer. That's how vast his kingdom was. After that, the Romans came in. And they defeated the Greeks. And it took a long time before the Roman Empire came and became sort of in shambles, you might say. And the modern empires since then have been as if they were iron and clay. And they've been uh, divided against one another. And there hasn't been a strong kingdom 
since then. But in verse 40, I want you to think about the, that Roman Empire because that's the kingdom in which Jesus was born. And it says in verse 40, these words are used of the Romans. Strong as iron, it crushes, shatters, breaks into pieces. It crushes and breaks into pieces. It says that a second time. The Roman Empire was exceedingly strong. And yet it did not last. And so Daniel here is giving a prophecy to King Nebuchadnezzar. And as much as you can get into all of the dates and the incredible prophecy, in fact, liberal theologians who don't believe in Scripture, they say this couldn't have been written by Daniel. It had to be written well after the Roman Empire fell. But we know that's not true. The ultimate message we read in verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. God's kingdom will destroy every other man-made kingdom. God's kingdom when it comes in its fullness, will never be destroyed. All human kingdoms crumble, one after another. They have feet of clay, but God's kingdom is eternal. God's kingdom is that stone that crushes all the others, and it grows into a great mountain and fills the whole earth. God's kingdom, verse 44 says, will not be left for another people. When Babylon was destroyed by the Medo-Persians, its remnants were gobbled up by the Medo-Persians. And then Alexander destroyed the Medo-Persian Empire. And its remnants were taken away by Alexander the Great. Same thing with the Romans. Alexander the Great's great kingdom was left in shatters. And, and it was left in remnants. And it was gobbled up by the Romans. But God's kingdom is eternal. God's kingdom will never disintegrate. God's kingdom will never Go away. We read in verse 45. Again, inasmuch as you saw that stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the, king, so the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. God's kingdom will not stand side by side with other kingdoms. God's kingdom will destroy every other man-made kingdom on earth. When the Lord returns, and He returns in glory, it will be, without a doubt, who the real king is. It's an important lesson for us today. Because we need to understand something. God's kingdom will not come by us trying to make any human kingdom better. I don't like to see the way our country's going. It bothers me, it disturbs me that it's such a great nation, an incredible nation, something that had never been done before on the face of the earth, where religious freedom was given to people, is now being stripped away. But if you think about it, you know it's not going to last. Only God's kingdom will last. It doesn't matter whether we're Christians in communist Russia. It doesn't matter whether we're Christians in communist China. It doesn't matter whether we're Christians 
in a horrible regime in Saudi Arabia or Libya, or it doesn't matter whether we're Christians in a country that's losing its way. What matters is that we understand that we belong to an eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God. It is him that we ultimately serve. We work for an eternal kingdom that is here right now, but it's not here yet in its fullness. The stone of God's kingdom will grow to fill the whole earth. Verses 46 and 47, Nebuchadnezzar begins to respond. It says, The king Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of his men in the court who saw the king sitting on his throne, getting down and bowing down before a Jewish slave? That's exactly what King Nebuchadnezzar did. He bowed down before Daniel. He fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel. Think about it. The king that had once ordered Daniel's death now bowed down to him. And the king gave orders to present to him an offering and a fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel in verse 47 and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. All the wisest men of Babylon were not able to uh, reveal this mystery because they did not trust in the Lord, but Daniel did. Daniel's God can do the impossible. Daniel's God is the dream maker. Daniel's God is the dream interpreter. Daniel's God is the dream fulfiller. And we know that Daniel's God is our God today. He is the God of gods. He is the Lord of kings Verse 48, then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king. And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as three friends over the administration of the province of Babylon. While Daniel was at the king's court. 600 years later. Jesus comes into this earth. The kingdoms of Babylon have risen and fallen, and the Medo-Persians, and the Greeks. And now, when Jesus came, the Romans were at the height of their power. And an angel named Gabriel came to a virgin girl named Mary. And among the words he said, he said this, your son, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. About 30 years later, Jesus began his ministry with these words. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. Looking at it, if we were for the very first time, we might wonder if somehow things went askew. Because what happened? Because just a few years after Jesus declared the kingdom of God is at hand, the Roman kingdom, the strong one, killed him crucified him for all to see. 
it might look at first glance that God's plans weren't fulfilled. It might look that, that the Roman kingdom won and the kingdom of God lost. But that's not what happened. Jesus was crucified, but that was part of God's plan. Jesus did something that no other king on earth could order or accomplish themselves. Jesus rose from the grave, and then he ascended to heaven as Lord over all. Jesus brought the kingdom of God to earth, and it exists this day. When you get saved, you experience the kingdom of God in part. You experience, you begin to experience what it's like to have God as your king. And when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within your life as evidence that God's kingdom is present. And so when you pray and your prayers are answered and miracles are done, it is evidence that God and his kingdom is working among us today. But you have to understand that even though God's presence, God's kingdom is here among us, God's kingdom has not yet been fulfilled. That is coming at a future day. It is coming with the return of Jesus Christ. We read about his return in Revelation chapter 19. John had a vision of what, was, what would happen when Jesus returned. And he tells us, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord. Of Lords. There's coming a day when Jesus will return. My question for you today is Are you ready? Are you ready if Jesus returned within your lifetime? Are you ready? Are you on His side? Have you submitted yourself to the kingdom of God? Do you recognize God as your King, Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If this is something you need to respond to today, then I want to give you that chance. I'm going to ask that we all bow our heads and close our eyes. In a moment, we're going to have a hymn of invitation. But if today you want to give your heart and your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and you want to settle it, and you want to make sure that you are saved, I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is the king. I believe that he died on the cross for me. And I believe he rose from the grave. 
I believe that he is the Lord. Father, I need to be saved. Cleanse me of my sin. Forgive me. Help me to live for you today. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask us all.